You're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the topics that matter most in the consumer and retail industries. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. Hi, everyone. Hope you all are keeping healthy and well. Those two things, health and wellness, are precisely what we'll be talking about on today's episode. The global consumer health and wellness market is a $1.5 trillion market growing at 5 to 10% a year. And according to a recent McKinsey survey, people around the world are increasingly interested in taking care of themselves and are planning to spend more money on products and services that improve their health and wellness. But what exactly is the consumer health and wellness market? What kinds of products and offerings are we talking about? And more importantly, what do consumers mean when they say they're interested in health and wellness? And what does it all mean for companies? Well, our guests today will enlighten us on these topics. They are three of McKinsey's foremost experts on consumer health, having been involved in the global survey that I mentioned earlier. So each of them can speak to the global findings, but also to some important regional insights and nuances. So I will introduce the McKinsey style, which means alphabetically by last name. Eric He is a partner in McKinsey's Shanghai office. Eric has worked with leading pharmaceutical companies, medical products manufacturers, and consumer goods players, not just in China, but also Australia and across Europe. Thanks for being here today, Eric. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Anna Pioni is an associate partner in the New York office. She is a leader within McKinsey's consumer practice and private equity practice, and she co-leads our global research on the future of wellness. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thanks, Monica. And Sandra Veltering is an associate partner in the Berlin office. She too is a leader within McKinsey's consumer practice and was instrumental in publishing our research on the future of wellness. Welcome to the podcast, Sandra. Thank you. So let's start by defining the scope of the consumer health and wellness market. What are we talking about and what are we not talking about? Right? Because lots of things can, in theory, fall under the health and wellness umbrella from you know, yoga mats to face cream to prescription drugs to self-help books to energy drinks, et cetera. But define for us the boundaries, if you will, of consumer health and wellness. We really wanted to take a consumer-backed view to our research. And of course, there's a ton of healthcare-specific spend, pharmaceutical-specific spend, but our work really focuses on what consumers choose to spend their own money on. That includes products and services, and we looked across a number of dimensions. So that includes health, which we're defining as more like um, vitamins, um, over-the-counter products, and a number of other cleaning products and other healthcare products that in some way play towards consumers' healthcare. It includes wellness-oriented nutrition products, fitness, um, wellness-oriented appearance products, which we found is largely um, centered around the beauty and personal care space, um, sleep and mindfulness, where our, the boundaries of our research fall is things that consumers are spending their own money on. So if, um, if it's likely getting reimbursed or submitted to your ins insurance company, that would fall outside of the scope of this work. So you did a survey of around 7,500 consumers across six countries. And the main findings from that survey are summarized in an article on McKinsey.com titled Feeling Good, the Future of the $1.5 Trillion Wellness Market. And I encourage our listeners to read that article. We'll talk in some detail about the key findings, but I'm curious, did the survey reveal anything that you found 
surprising? Maybe Sandra, you can start with that one. I think, I mean, what was really surprising is the big shift to, to personalization. And that is a trend we really see globally. We think it's surprising, but it's also what we, you know, it's leading into the future that consumers are willing to give their personal data in order to get really a personal treatment and a personal service. And that holds true for all the fields and areas Anna mentioned before, so for fitness, as well as for mental well-being and sleep, but also for overall health products and services. I guess for me, uh, along the few dimensions we defined, obviously there are country or region specific characteristics, right? They are different, but not in a way surprising. But we actually did another set of analysis, which, which is by looking at uh, the keywords uh, people used when a question is asked, when you're thinking about a wellness, what comes to mind? But right? we compared a few countries. That was quite shockingly surprising to me. For example, um, I don't know if Sandra would agree um, as a German, uh, the word cloud from the German survey actually says uh, relaxation, sauna, and a massage. But when we look at, for example, Japan, um, the keywords is all about um, exercise in moderation. Don't do anything extreme, right? The whole Zen concept. When we think about Brazil, is the the peaceful mind, right? But when we talk about China, that's what quite surprised me is the keywords were about sleep issues, anxiety, or even depression, right? Just given how the whole mental health is underdeveloped concept in China, comparing to all the developed economies, uh, that was quite uh, shockingly surprising to me. Something that really stood out to me, Monica, is this emerging concept of the importance of natural products. And we ask consumers to choose between more natural or more effective products. And we saw that for a number of categories, and this was really shocking, um, that consumers were more likely to choose natural products than they were for effective. So for example, dietary supplements, 40% of consumers globally would prefer a more natural product over a more effective product, and only 20% would choose effective. That obviously doesn't hold for all categories. So a lot of over-the-counter medicine type of um, products, cough, cold um, medicine or pain, the effectiveness is still the most important criteria and, and holds over natural for most consumers. But we were surprised at the categories like this where um, natural actually is winning out. And that does vary a little bit from country to country. So for example, the US, there's still a little bit more of a bias towards effective over natural um, uh, relative to other countries, but all of them saw that same pattern where natural is winning over effective for many categories. That was incredibly surprising to me as well. And I want to uh, deep dive a little bit into some of the things that you all have said. So maybe first, let's start with personalization, which Sandra, you brought up. Um, you know, there's tension, right, between consumers' desire for greater personalization, which of course requires analytics and tracking. Uh, and on the other hand, consumer concerns about privacy. And it seems like it could be a pretty tricky balance to strike. Have you seen companies that are doing this well? And what are some best practices there? And what's some advice that you could give to consumer companies who are trying to strike that balance? I think China, at least among the six countries we surveyed, is the one who are most likely or willing to trade um, privacy for uh, personalization. 
But in terms of advice, especially in today's environment where I think the governments globally are cracking down on some of the data sharing and also on some of the uh, internet giants, um, it is even more critical to think through almost kind of a design to value concept, right? If we truly believe personalization will bring more efficacy, what are the must-have information needed, right? Do you really have to go the far extreme of real personalization or just a simple mass customization with very simple data can already do the job? And also recognize if you're a global company, what are the country differences in terms of data regulation and also consumers' willingness to share data and also the needs to make the products effective. I think you have to really customize your personalization strategy uh, respecting each market's unique consumer needs and a regulatory environment. I think that's exactly right, Eric. And that's something that we've seen play out in the U.S. as well. Based on our research, it doesn't appear to be the case that consumers are demanding an individual product made for their individual self necessarily. It's more about this mass customization. Consumers want product that is tailored to them, that works for them, um, but it doesn't mean that um, companies can't do that in a smart and cost-effective way. And in fact, um, when we've spoken to consumers about this, um, the willingness to pay is generally not quite so high as to justify um, truly personalized manufacturing processes. One big thing is obviously scalability, right? I mean, we're just going along with price and so forth, right? I mean, we have seen personalization emerging Im among um, startups, the startups which are growing fast, but not so much among like the big consumer health companies yet. So it's really the question, how do you scale personalization and where do you basically hit the balance between the scalability of personalization and not doing it a one-on-one -on -one product, but rather a categorization or clustering of like sub-segments of consumers, like women between 35 and 40, and, and then develop specific vitamin products for them, for example, or skincare products. Let's talk a little bit about uh, innovation, which you've just touched on, Sandra. So, you know, you identified six buckets that consumers are more interested in, right? Health, fitness, nutrition, appearance, sleep, and mindfulness. In which of those subcategories do you see the most innovation happening right now? And what are some of the most exciting new things on the horizon that you're seeing? Some of the most interesting innovations I've seen are products that span across a number of those categories. So the, the um, product group that comes to mind first and foremost are, are the, the wearables and fitness trackers. So things that combine tech along with support on sleep tracking, fitness and um, exercise tracking, and in some cases, nutrition, meditation, uh, mindfulness as well. I think fitness has done a really interesting job innovating. And I'm thinking specifically of Mirror, Tonal, um, Peloton obviously is, is a big example here where that, that ability to really replicate the environment of the, of the gym in many ways in your own home is just a much higher quality experience than, than it used to be years ago. I think health is another one that really stands out to me. And of course, that's a super broad category. So of course, there's a lot more room for innovation there. But I'm seeing some interesting research into, for example, pain where companies are looking at therapeutic methods that are more oriented around 
touch or pressure points where consumers can treat a symptom without necessarily having to take a, a pill or a supplement or can combine those types of therapies to come out to a better outcome? For me, actually, sleep and mindfulness are two categories which you know, I think had been not so present before Corona for the COVID crisis and which really, you know, we're coming to consumers' attention much more. If we look at the, you know, aura, the sleep ring, that covers everything, right? I mean, from falling asleep quickly, staying asleep the whole night and waking up refreshed and what you can do in order to really also have a healthy sleep rhythm and a healthy sleep and not necessarily through like, medical or a sleep product, the whole mindfulness topic and, and what you have to do and what you can do in order to really have a good um, mental well-being, that that's something which is extremely on the um, horizon as well. It's growing significantly. For me, um, maybe also specific to China, it would be around uh, nutrition, better nutrition, especially in the context of what we just talked about, personalization, right? For us to realize true personalization, first of all, it does require true scientific breakthrough. Some of the micro uh, biome breakthrough is required, right? That's innovative. But if you want to get a little bit more pre precise, then you need a physical performance. That's where the wearable players comes into play. They get all, all of your exercise, blood pressure, etc. And if you go even further, that's when the biologic tests, even some DNA tests come into play. And when you have all these participants in the ecosystem with data aggregator, uh, that's where a lot of innovation uh, is happening, um, especially in China, where eating healthy uh, is probably the biggest theme about all the six uh, health and wellness themes. So uh, nutrition, especially personalized nutrition for me, is probably the most innovative uh, battlefield uh, in China right now. That is also building up on what we discussed before, the personalization topic, right? I mean, because personalization, obviously, it's only possible through like digital engagement, because otherwise you just don't have the data of the consumer, right? So our um, future of wellness report also revealed that globally consumers are willing to spend a majority or spend, <laughs> spend a significant amount on services as well, combined with products, obviously. Um, but that is a finding which we um, observed globally. And you can only offer these kind of services if you have the digital engagement with the consumers, right? So that's definitely a big, well, it's, it's a big trend and a very important topic for consumer health. So speaking of digital and engagement, I'd love to get your thoughts on influencers, right? Or key opinion leaders who are really influential in the wellness market. And as your research shows, it's not just mega influencers with millions of followers, but even micro influencers with only tens of thousands of followers. What's your advice to companies in selecting and partnering with influencers? Influencers are becoming more and more critical across categories in the wellness space. And this is a new muscle that we find that a lot of our clients just don't have as much experience exercising and leveraging in a way that is very cost effective and lets them get the reach that they'd like. The traditional celebrity driven model is a lot easier for bigger companies because it is uh, a single touch point, a single relationship, um, and a little bit more straightforward. And so this, this new influencer model does require a different way of engaging in the marketing and the way that you drive 
consumer reach. And so that's something that we've seen companies really focusing on and thinking about. But you do have to be very careful about really defining what is the strategy and the way that you want to reach your consumer and therefore who are the types of influencers that you want to partner with. Consumers can sniff out from a mile away an influencer that is just recommending a product because they received money from a brand to do so. Where we see a much more effective and mutually beneficial relationship is where companies are able to find those influencers that are a natural fit with their products or their services. And therefore, even if there is an economic transaction going on for that recommendation or promotion, it is still able to be done in a way that comes across as much more genuine and authentic for consumers and therefore is vastly more effective from a marketing ROI perspective as well. Credibility uh, matters. Right? If you think about the traditional house and wellness category, a lot of those are not just direct to consumer engagement. A lot of the demand generation comes from HCP, healthcare professional recommendation. If we're going for celebrity types of endorsement, that person should have the credibility in order not uh, to harm your brand equity as a health and wellness brand. But also specifically in China, I guess anywhere else globally, the, the whole ROI um, angle and are raised, they're getting increasingly expensive. Now you have to look at all the different touch points and ways to activate a consumer or generate demand. Celebrities, uh, if you use them properly, it will hopefully not only give you a short-term traffic boost, but also enhance uh, the brand equity. My fear is this is such a hot topic. Sometimes people uh, do this at the, the cost of longer-term damage to their brand equity as a health and wellness brand. That's a great point, Eric. And an example that really jumps to mind for me is Sensodyne, which has done a really fantastic job not leaning on influencers on social media, but thinking about key opinion leaders or influencers in a more expansive sense. And they've really gone through dentists, working with dentists, collaborating with them to help them understand the benefits of the product and having dentists bring the recommendation of that product to consumers. And at least in the US, many dentists you go to anecdotally, they, they recommend that you use Sensodyne and that's driven massive sales growth for the brand. And so they've won on this influencer strategy, but it's not influencers in the way that we keep hearing about, which, which obviously matters a lot as well, but it's influencers in a different sense, influencers from a, a healthcare perspective or a key opinion leader perspective. I think the key point here is also how do you use the new channels? So, you know, the I wouldn't call it social media channels, right? But like the digital engagement channels as a sales rep with like your pharmacist and dentist and so forth, right? So how do you use um, video conferencing or like these kind of calls for your for your dentist and pharmacist visits in order to really also drive the engagement there. And I think COVID has here also shown how you can really also um, engage with the respective um, sales point in a, in a digital or distance way. 
There's a lot more that we could talk about, but let's sum up with your one most important message to CEOs. If you could gather all the CEOs of consumer health and wellness companies in a room together and give them one piece of advice, what would that be? I think one of the fundamental questions for any of the players getting into the segment, um, I think they have to recognize this is a battlefield at the intersection of healthcare, consumer slash FMCG, and also digital. And you have to fundamentally think through what's your winning model archetype, right? Because the activation engine can be very different. Is your product category more HCP recommendation driven? or a celebrity would be good enough, right? What's your differentiating value proposition? And then also thinking about how your channel play. Is it going to be a digital-led business alone, or do you have to be a fully-fledged omni-channel uh, play to provide the, um, the, the experience to the consumers? I think almost kind of a go back to the fundamentals, uh, thinking through the strategy, as opposed to chasing some of the buzzword hire a celebrity, go for the digital, go back to the business fundamentals. Most of what we hear a lot and talk with um, CEOs about is like offering that through an ecosystem, right? Because I mean, through that, you're able to to um, provide a holistic offering. And the second advice I would give is also really be agile because we see the trends shaping up so quickly. So you always need to obviously foresee what's the next trend which is coming but then also be agile enough to to react quickly. So for me, Monica, it's a question of portfolio shaping. What are the ways that your consumers are engaging with your products and where are they going next across these different wellness dimensions? Are there other opportunities where you could be playing in both products and services in a way that's obviously authentic to your brand? Are there opportunities for you to play across different wellness dimensions? So if you're a fitness company, can you also play in apparel? What is our offering today, but what could our offering be in the future? And how should we shape our products and our services, our overall offering and our portfolio in order to better serve our consumers and serve them more holistically and expansively? Solid advice. Thank you, Anna, Eric, and Sandra for joining us. And to our listeners, if you'd like to read more of our thinking on consumer health and wellness, visit our collection page at mckinsey.com slash consumer health. Again, that's mckinsey.com slash consumer health. Until next time, I'm Monica Toriello. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on mckinsey.com very soon. To suggest topics for future episodes, email us at consumer underscore podcast at mckinsey.com. To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email alerts on mckinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.